Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 297 of Forgotten Classics, where we will continue with Talents Incorporated by Murray Leinster. First, though, let me tell you what I've been listening to lately. Mythgard Academy, which is a free iTunes University class by Corey Olson, who is the Tolkien professor, has just begun doing Dracula. The first two classes are out. Each of them is two hours long, which seems intimidating, but somehow for me, when I'm listening to Corey Olson, the time just goes flying by. And I have listened to two other well, you would call them classes, but you know, podcast type coverages of Dracula. And they have been really great. But this, as always, adds more to it. And there's something about that Dracula story. I know it so well, because I've read it so many times. And yet, the new insights just make me love it even more. So if you want to listen to that, it's really well done. Uh, Corey Olson moderates it and, and actually he teaches the class. And what I mean by moderate is there are people who will pay for the class so they can do the live sessions and they're sending him questions via a webinar type thing or comments or insights. And so he's incorporating all those as he goes and it makes it a very dynamic experience for a podcast. So I really do enjoy it. He's done a lot of other different books, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, Watership Down, Dune, of course, numerous coverage of different Tolkien books. That's how he started. And I can highly recommend all those. I haven't listened to the Silmarillion ones or a bunch of those, but I'm sure they're wonderful. I just don't care about them. Anyway, so that's one thing. The other is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, which is also known as Witch House Media, has begun covering Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu, and that is another favorite vampire book. It was actually written before Dracula, which is what made me listen to it in the first place a long time ago, and I was so stunned by the originality, what a good story is it, some of the ah, elements which I didn't expect. <laughs> but it was really a very wonderful book. And so listening to them cover it is really good. Now they have a paid subscription. They do once a month a free episode of whatever they're covering, or just as a standalone. And then you have to pay for the others. And I don't pay for many of these sorts of things. But theirs is one that I do pay for. So you might want to try one or two of their free ones because I've been listening to them from the beginning and they're so fun to listen to. Also, just as it's not really a tie-in, but thematically it almost goes with it, I listened to Dante's Inferno. I got it from Audible and it may be available from other places. The translator was Benedict Flynn. It's a translation that they say was done for audiobook. Now, I'm not sure what that means. I guess just so it will flow easily to our ears when we're listening. Because when I was listening to it, I have two translations. I was listening to some of it and comparing it 
as I was going. And of course, there are different word choices, but the essence of what's being communicated is really coming across well. And the thing I like about it is when you're reading Dante, unless I guess you're lucky enough to be able to read the original Italian, there are tons and tons of notes. They're explaining Dante's politics. They're explaining his nationality and how that would go into what he's writing. They're explaining a lot of the classical um, allusions or references that he's making. They're looking at thematic stuff, which is my favorite, actually. I really like the stuff where it talks about, now thematically, see, this goes here and this goes there, and it's like he's building a cathedral and it brings a lot out, of course, but what you miss sometimes is just the basic story. And listening to it, if you can just let a lot of that stuff flow and not worry about some of the references, you get a more pure experience. And I actually found things in there that I hadn't really noticed just in terms of story development. And it made it seem much more modern and contemporary in terms of some of the things that were done. Because, of course, Inferno is the most imaginative in terms of what we could relate to when you think of science fiction and horror stories. I mean, Dante was writing so long ago, and modern writers do not have anything on this guy. But he's, of course, always making a very important point with what he's doing. So it just really kind of brought it alive in a new way. It was read by Heathcote Williams, who is simply magnificent. There are a lot of other readings of different translations of Dante out there, but this guy, I could tell when I listened to the sample, he was the one who was going to make it live, and he really did. So I highly recommend that also if you're in the mood for it. I'll be downloading, uh, not Paradiso, uh, Purgatorio, Purgatory next, which is actually kind of my favorite part of the Divine Comedy. I know, I'm a bit perverse. But I like thinking that there's hope out there for all of us. So I kind of like that part. Anyway, so that's what I've been listening to. And on the home front, as it has been in many parts of the U.S., it has been unseasonably warm. So I've kind of gotten used to having the weather be in the 70s, maybe hit 80, which does not seem right for March or February. But it just suddenly dove back down to kind of where it should be. So it's in the 50s today, and it's one of those real shiny, sunshiny days where you go outside and the wind is blowing and everything just feels alive. Somehow that crisp weather brings that spring feeling. And it is going to be Palm Sunday tomorrow. So Easter is in a week. So I guess it was kind of appropriate that I'm listening to all this doom and gloom and especially the Dante. And it has certainly been a wonderful background for the cooking I've been doing. We have a group of people coming next week, so I've been baking for that, some cookies, and then I was making rolls that I'll put in the freezer because those will be for Easter dinner, and I've just been doing a lot of domestic stuff like that that I haven't for a while, and so I've really been having a great day. So what better day to launch back into talents incorporated which is one of my favorite stories you may recall last time read to us by the wonderful mark nelson from librivox we found out that there is the planet of kandar and they're in hushed preparedness 
waiting for invaders to descend. And it's almost like a Roman Empire situation. This uh, Meekin, I believe, is the name of the planet that has been conquering one little planet after another. And they're getting ready to come for Kandar next. And Kandar is not warlike. They're very peaceful. They're not set up for anything like they would need to defend themselves. So they're mostly trying to get the important people off the planet. They're burning important papers. And when young Captain Bors is interrupted by somebody from Talents Incorporated who has important information that seems absolutely impossible, he's loath to believe him. But he checks it out, and it's true. Including a spy ship that was waiting on the bottom of the ocean to launch nuclear missiles or some kind of devastating missile and knock their spaceships out of the sky when they were getting ready to go try to defend their planet a little. So, he's just come back from that mission, and he's gone to see King Humphrey VIII, which, did this crack anybody else up? Nobody is named King Humphrey unless they're a namby-pamby, no-spying kind of guy. I think we're being prepared for something. He certainly hasn't been too commanding in the tiny bit that we've seen of him so far. But when Captain Bors goes to see King Humphrey and his uncle, the pretender of Trey Lee, there was Morgan from Talents Incorporated. So what I want to know is, what is Talents Incorporated? What kind of talents are these that we're talking about? How can they predict the future? And why did they come there to help in the first place? Do they think they're going to make a lot of money? Are they looking for some other benefit? Well, I guess now maybe is our time to find out. Let's dive in. Talents Incorporated, Chapter 2 At the spaceport, carefully selected persons filed onto the spaceliner Vestas. It was not officially believed that the other three great chartered ships would arrive before the Mekanese fleet. It was, in fact, rather likely that none of the information given by Talents Incorporated was ever believed until the event confirmed the prediction. In the case of the first liner, those who went on board had been chosen by a strict principle of priority. Men who would merely be imprisoned when Meekin took over had no privilege of escape. Not yet. Those who were destined for execution as soon as a quisling government was formed were also not entitled to depart on the liner. But those who had conspicuously supported King Humphrey in his resistance to intimidation, those who had encouraged others to object to concessions which could only be forerunners of other concessions, those who had spoken and written and labored to spread information about the facts of life under Meekin, would not merely be imprisoned or executed. They would be tortured. So they were entitled to first chance at escape. The space liner blasted off some six hours after its arrival. It vanished blessedly into overdrive where it could not be intercepted. It headed for the faraway world of Trent, where its passengers would be allowed to land as refugees, and where, doubtless, they would speak bitterly about Meekin for all the rest of their lives. But the government of Meekin would not care. Meekin was a phenomenon so improbable 
that only those who were students of past civilizations could really believe it. There were innumerable references to such regimes in the histories of ancient Earth. There was, for example, Napoleon, said people informed about such matters. With a fraction of a fraction of one percent of the French people actively cooperating, he overawed the rest and then took over a nation which was not even his own. Then he took over other nations where less than a fraction of a fraction of one percent concurred. Then he took soldiers from those second-order conquests to make third-order conquests, and then soldiers from the third to make fourth. There was Mussolini, said the learned men. He had organized a group of rowdies and gangsters, and began by levying protection money on gambling-houses, and even less reputable resorts, and with the money increased his following. He had murdered those who opposed him, and presently he collected protection money from even the great business corporations of his country, financing more political gangsterism until he ruled his nation for himself and his confederates. And there was Hitler, said the historically minded. In the beginning his followers never dared show themselves in the uniforms they adopted, because their fellow countrymen hated everything they stood for. But before the end came they worshipped him. They murdered millions at his command, but they died because of him too. There was Lenin, and there was Stalin. Specialists in history could talk very learnedly about the developments on Meekin which paralleled the cabals headed by Lenin, and later Stalin. Theirs was a much more durable organization than those of Napoleon and Mussolini and Hitler. The ruling clique on Meekin had begun in this manner. Meekin had once had a cause to which all its officials paid lip service, and some possibly believed in. Because of this cause, it was the organization and not the individual who was apotheosized. Therefore there could be fierce battles among members of the ruling class. There could be conspiracies. The last three dictators of Meekin had been murdered in palace revolutions, and the current dictator was more elaborately protected from his confreres than any mere hereditary tyrant ever needed to be. But Meekin remained a strong and dynamic world, engaged in the endless subjugation of other worlds for a purpose nobody really remembered any more. Against such a society a planet like Kandar was helpless. Meekin could not be placated nor satisfied with less than the subjugation and the ruin of its neighbors. For a time Kandar had tried to arm for its own defense. It had a space fleet which in quality was probably equal to Meekin's, but in quantity was hopelessly less. Also it had a defensive policy. It did not dream of any but a defensive war, and no war was ever won by mere defense. There could be no defense against the building up of tensions, the contriving of incidents, the invention of insults. It had been proved often enough. Eventually there was an ultimatum, and there was surrender, and then the installation of a puppet government, and the ruthless bleeding of another captured planet for the benefit of the rulers of Meekin. The process was implacable. There was nothing to be done but submit, flee, or die. Various parts of Kandar's population chose one or another course. 
four great liners would carry away those who could be helped to flee. The mass of the people must submit, the fighting forces savagely made ready to die. But in the cabinet meeting after the destruction of the hidden enemy cruiser, the tone was set by highly practical men. Bors was present at the meeting. He destroyed the cruiser. He was to be questioned about it. He had Morgan standing by to explain the part of Talents Incorporated, if required. King Humphrey said heavily, This is probably the last cabinet meeting before the coming of the Mekinese. I do not think oratory is called for. I put the situation as it stands. A fleet will come from Meekin for our answer to their ultimatum. Our space fleet will not surrender. Our air force is openly mutinous at the idea of submission. It has been said that if we fight, our planet will be bombed from space until all its air is poison, so that every living creature here will die. If this is true, I do not think that even we who plan to fight have the right to bring such a bombing about. But I doubt if that is true. There has been one incident. Whether one likes it or not, it has happened. Captain Bors has reason to hope that the space fleet, by fighting to the death, can actually benefit the rest of our people." Bors spoke, excitement coloring his words. It's perfectly simple. There are only two kinds of people, slaves and free men. Slaves can be tortured and killed without concern. With free men, a bargain has always to be struck. If there is no resistance to the Mekinese, they will despise us. We will be worse off than if we fight, because if we fight, at least our people will be respected. They may be oppressed because they are conquered, but they won't be treated with the contempt and doubled oppression given to slaves." A bearded man said querulously, "'That's theory. It's psychology. It even smacks of idealism. Let us be realistic. As a practical man, I am concerned with getting the best possible terms for our population. After all, the dictator of Meekin must be a reasonable man. He must be a practical man. I believe that we should negotiate until the very last instant." Bohr said indignantly, "'Negotiate? You haven't anything to negotiate with. I am not a citizen of Kandar, though I serve in its fleet. I am still a national of Trelee. But I have talked to the officers of the fleet. They won't surrender. You can't negotiate for them to do so. You can't negotiate for them to go quietly away and pretend that nothing has happened, and that there never was a fleet. When the Mekinese arrive, the fleet will fight. It doesn't hope to win, it doesn't expect anything, except getting killed honorably when its enemy would like to have it grovel. But it's going to fight." King Humphrey said doggedly, my influence does not extend to the disgrace of our fighting forces. The fleet will fight. I believe it unwise. But since it will fight, I shall be in the flagship, and it will not surrender." There was a pause. The bearded man said peevishly, "'But it should fight on its own. It should not compromise Kandar. 
There was a murmur. King Humphrey looked about him from under lowered brows. "'That can be arranged,' he said heavily. "'I will constitute a caretaker government by royal proclamation. I will appoint you,' he looked steadily at the bearded man, "'to be head of it, and make such terms as you can. If you like, when the Mekinese come, you can warn them that the fleet has mutinied under me its king, and may offer battle, but that you are ready to lead the people of Kandar in—' "'In licking the boots of all Mekinese,' said Bors in an icy tone. There was a small rumble of protest. Bors stood up. "'I'd better leave,' he said coldly. "'I'm not entitled to speak. If you want me, I can be reached.' He strode from the council chamber. As the door closed behind him, he ground his teeth. The stout man, Morgan, of the space-yacht Silva, paced up and down in the room where he waited to be called. His daughter sat tranquilly in a chair. She smiled pleasantly at Bors when he came in. Morgan turned to face him. "'Here's some talents incorporated information,' he said zestfully. "'The cabinet is scared. A few are willing to fight, but most are already trying to think how they will make terms with the Mekinese.' Bors opened his mouth to swear, then checked himself. Gwenlin, said Morgan, will pardon an expression of honest indignation. It's a dirty shame, eh? If I were a native of Kendar, said Bors bitterly, I'd be even more ashamed than I am as a native of Tre-Lee. The people of Tre-Lee surrendered, but they didn't realize what they were getting into. These men do. The girl Gwenlin said quietly, I'm sorry for King Humphrey. "'He's miscast,' said Morgan briskly. "'He should be a king of a calm and peaceful world, in calm and peaceful times. "'You're going to have trouble with him, Captain Bors,' then he said. "'Perhaps we can work out a plan or two, eh? "'While you're waiting for the cabinet to call you back?' "'I've no authority,' said Bors. "'My uncle's the pretender of Tre-Lee, and I was originally commissioned in the fleet as a sort of courtesy to him.' I can't speak for anybody but myself. You can speak for common sense, said Gwenlin. After all, you know what the people really want. You could try to arrange things so that the fleet can fight well. It'll fight well, said Bors curtly. It'll give a good account of itself. But that won't do any good. Morgan struck an attitude, beaming. Ah, but you've got talents incorporated on your side. You don't realize yet, Captain, what a difference that can make. While there's life and talents incorporated, there's hope. Bors shrugged. Suddenly, he found that he, too, drearily accepted defeat. There was no more hope of accomplishment. There was nothing to be achieved. He would serve no purpose by straining against the impossible. He said, tiredly, "'I'll agree that Talents Incorporated cost the Mekinese one cruiser.' "'A trifle,' said Morgan, waving his hand. "'Mere soupçon of accomplishment. We're prepared to do vastly more.' It occurred to Bors to be curious. "'Why? You're risking your life and your daughter's by staying here. 
If Megan ever finds out about its cruiser on the sea-bottom and your share in that affair, you'll be in a fix. And certainly you can't expect to make a profit here. We could even pay you for what you've already done." "'I'm right now,' said Morgan placidly, "'quite as rich as I want to be. I've another ambition. But let's not go into that. I want to show you what Talents Incorporated can do in the four days—he looked at his watch—three hours and some odd minutes that remain before the Mekinese fleet turns up. You've checked up on Talents Incorporated?" "'My uncle says,' Bors told him, "'that you kept Philip of Norden from being assassinated by a fission-bomb at a cornerstone laying. He also says you wouldn't accept a reward, only a medal.' I collect them," said Morgan modestly. You'd be surprised how many orders and decorations a man can acquire by industry and organization, and talents incorporated. Gwendolen said, Four days, three hours, and some odd minutes. True, said Morgan. Let's get at it. Captain Bors, have you ever heard of a lightning calculator? A person who can do complicated sums in his head as fast as he can hear or read the numbers involved? Yes, said Bors. It's quite phenomenal, I believe. It's a form of genius, said Morgan. Only I call it a talent because it tends to make itself useless. Have you ever heard of a dowser? If you mean a man who finds places for wells and locates mines by means of a hazel twig—' "'The hazel twig is immaterial,' Morgan told him. "'The point is that you've heard of them, and you know that they can actually do such things, right?' Bors frowned. "'It's not proven,' he said. "'At least I think it isn't considered proven because it isn't understood.' but I believe it's conceded that such things are done. I believe, in fact, that dousing has been done on photographs and maps, in an office, and not on the spot at all. I admit that that seems impossible. But I'm told it happens." Morgan nodded rapidly, very well pleased. One more. Have you heard of precognition? Bors nodded. Then he shrugged. I have a talent," said Morgan. I have a man in my employ with a talent for precognizing when ships are going to arrive. His gift is strictly limited. He used to work in a spaceport office. He always knew when a ship was coming in. He didn't know how he knew. He doesn't know now. But he always knows when a ship will arrive at the planet where he is. Interesting," said Bors, only half listening. He was discharged, Morgan went on, because he allowed a maintenance crew to disassemble, for repair, a vital relay in a landing grid on the very day when three spaceships were scheduled for arrival. There was pandemonium, of course, because nothing could have landed there. So when my talent let the relay be dismantled, with three ships expected, but one ship was one day late, another two days, and the third four. He knew it. He didn't know how, but he knew. He was discharged anyway." Bors did not answer. The cabinet meeting in the other room went on. "'He told me,' 
said Morgan, matter-of-factly, that four ships would arrive on Kandar, and when? One of them has arrived. The others will come as predicted. He knows that a fleet will get here two days after the last of the four. One can guess it will be the Mekinese fleet. Bors frowned. He was interested now. "'I've another talent,' pursued Morgan. "'He ought to be a paranoiac. He has all the tendencies to suspicion that a paranoid personality has. But his suspicions happen to be true. He'll read an item in a newspaper, or walk past, oh, say, a bank. Darkly and suspiciously, he guesses that the newspaper item will suggest a crime to someone, or that someone will attempt to rob the bank in this fashion or that, at such and such a time. And someone does. He'd be an uncomfortable companion, Bors observed wryly. I found him in jail, said Morgan cheerfully. He'd been warning the police of crimes to come. They happened. So the police jailed him and demanded that he name his accomplices so they could break up the criminal gang whose feats he knew in advance. I got him out of jail and hired him as a talent in Talents Incorporated. Bors blinked. Before we landed here, said Morgan, I told him about the political situation, the events you expect. He immediately suspected that the Mekinese would have a ship down somewhere to blast the fleet of Kandar if it should dare to resist. In fact, he said positively that such a cruiser was waiting word to fire fusion bombs. Bors blinked again. And I spread out maps, said Morgan, and my dowser went over them, not with a hazel twig, but something equally unscientific his instinct, and he assured me that the cruiser was underwater five miles north-northeast magnetic from Cape Farnell. The map said the depth there was fifty fathoms. Then my paranoid talent observed that there'd be spies on shore with means to signal to the submerged cruiser. My dowser then found a small shack on the map where a communicator to the ship would be. With the information about the arrival of the liners and the facts about the cruiser— and I had other information, too, I went to the Ministry for Diplomatic Affairs and told you. As you know, the information I gave you was accurate. Bors felt as if he'd been hit over the head. This was ridiculous. He'd hunted for the space cruiser under the sea because the prediction of the liner's arrival was so uncannily correct. He'd helped plan and carry out the destruction of that warship because its existence and location were verified by a magnetometer. But if he'd known how the information was obtained, if he'd known it was guessed at by a discharged spaceport employee and a paranoid personality and a man who used a hazel twig or something similar, if he'd known that, he'd never have dreamed of accepting it. He'd have flatly dismissed the ship arrival prediction. But, if he hadn't trusted the information enough to check on it, why, the small space fleet of Kandar would vanish in atomic flame when it tried to take off to flight. With it would vanish Bors, his uncle, and the king, and many resolute haters of Meekin. Gwenlin said, "'You're perfectly right, Captain.' "'What's that?' asked Bors numbly. "'It's stark raving lunacy,' said Gwenlin pleasantly. 
just like it would have seemed stark raving lunacy once upon a time to think of people talking to each other when they were a thousand miles apart, like it seemed insane to talk about flying machines, and again when they said there could be a space drive in which the reaction would be at a right angle to the action, and especially when somebody said that a way would be found to drive ships faster than light. It's lunacy, just like those things. Yes, agreed Bors, his thoughts crowding one another. It's all of that. Morgan nodded his head rapidly. I felt that way about it, he observed, when I first got the idea of finding and organizing talents for practical purposes. But I said to myself, lots of great fortunes have been made by people assuming that other people are idiots. In some ways, they are, you know. And then I said to myself, Possibly a fortune can be made by somebody assuming that he is an idiot. So I assumed it was idiotic to doubt something that visibly happened, merely because I couldn't understand it. And Talents Incorporated was born. It's done quite well. Bohr shook his head as if to clear it. It seems to have worked, he admitted. But if I'd known... He spread out his hands. I'll play along. What more can you do for us?" "'I've no idea,' said Morgan placidly. "'Such things have to work themselves out, with a little prodding, of course. But one of my talents says the lightning calculator talent is the one who'll do you the most good soonest. I'd suggest—' There was a murmur of voices from the cabinet room. The door opened and King Humphrey came out. He looked baffled, which was not unusual, but he looked enraged, which was. "'Bores,' he said thickly, "'I've always thought I was a practical man. But if being practical means what some members of my cabinet think, I would rather be a poet. Bores, do something before my cabinet dethrones me and tricks the fleet into disbanding.' He stumbled across the room, not noticing Morgan or Gwenlin. Bors came to attention. "'Majesty,' he said, not knowing whether he spoke in irony or bewilderment, "'I take that as an order.' The king did not answer. When the door on the other side of the room closed behind his unregal figure, Bors turned to Morgan. "'I think I've been given authority,' he said in a sort of baffled calm. Suppose we go, Mr. Morgan, and find out what your lightning calculator can do in the way of mental arithmetic to change the situation of the kingdom?" "'Fine,' said Morgan cheerfully. "'Do you know, Captain Bors, he can solve a three-body problem in his head? He hasn't the least idea how he does it, but the answer always comes out right.' Then he said exuberantly, "'He'll tell you something useful, though. That's Talents Incorporated Information. Chapter 3 There was a fleet on the way to Kandar. It could not be said to be traveling in space, of course. If there had been an observer somewhere, he could not conceivably have detected the ships. There would be no occultations of stars, no blotting out of any of the hundreds and thousands of millions of bright specks which filled all the firmament. There would be no drive radiation which even the most sensitive of instruments could pick up. 
The fleet might be at one place to an observer's right, where it was imperceptible, and then it might be at a place to the observer's left, where it was undetectable, and nobody could have told the difference. Actually, each ship of the Mekinese fleet was in overdrive, which meant that each had stressed the space immediately around it so that it was like a cocoon of other space, as if it were out of this cosmos altogether and in another. In sober fact, of course, nothing of the sort had happened. An overdrive field changed the physical constants of space. The capacity of a condenser in an overdrive field was different from that of a condenser out of it. The self-induction of a coil in an overdrive field was not the same as in normal space. Magnetic and gravitational fields also did not follow the same laws in stressed space as in unstressed extension. The speed of light was different. Inertia was different. In short, a ship could drive at many hundreds of times the velocity of light, and the laws of Einstein did not apply, because his laws referred to space that men had not tampered with. But those ships in overdrive had to be considered as in motion, and though their speed had to be considered as beyond the astronomical, there were such incredible distances to be covered that time piled up. Aside from double stars, there were no suns yet discovered which were less than light-years apart. The time required for travel between inhabited planets was still comparable to the time needed for surface travel between continents on a world. So the fleet of Meekin, journeying faster than the mind could imagine, nevertheless drove and drove and drove in the blackness and darkness and isolation of each ship's overdrive field. They had so driven for days. They would continue to do so for days to come. When Captain Bors burned the documents in the Ministry for Diplomatic Affairs, the enemy fleet might have been said to be at one place, when a submerged space cruiser, planning assassination, was itself blown to bits with no chance to strike back, the Mekinese fleet was approximately somewhere else. When a cabinet meeting disheartened King Humphrey, the fleet was much nearer to Kandar. But days of highly tedious eventlessness was still ahead of the war fleet. So Bors and Gwenlin and Morgan got a ground car and were driven to Kandar's commercial spaceport. There they found the Silva. It was far larger than the usual space yachts. There were commercial spacecraft which were no larger. But it was a workmanlike sort of ship at that. It had two lifeboat blisters, and there were emergency rockets for landings where no landing grids existed. The armored bands of overdrive coil shielding were massive. The Silva, in fact, looked more like a service ship than either a commercial vessel or a yacht. It was obviously unarmed, but it had the look of a craft that could go very nearly anywhere. "'You'll find the talents a bit odd,' said Gwenlin, as they drove up under the hull's wide bulge. When they meet new people, they like to show off. Most of them were pretty well frustrated before father found a use for them. But they're quite pleasant people if you don't treat them like freaks. They're not, you know. Bors had nothing to say. Until he was fifteen, he'd lived on Tralee, which was then a quiet, pacific world, as Kandar had been. As the nephew of a monarch, at least as resolutely constitutional as King Humphrey, he'd been raised in a very matter-of-fact fashion. 
the atmosphere had been that of a comfortable, realistic adjustment to facts. He was taught a great respect for certain facts without being made fanatically opposed to anything else. He'd been trained to require reasonable evidence without demanding that all proofs come out of test tubes and electronic apparatus. He was specifically taught that arithmetic cannot be proved by experimental evidence, but that sound experimental evidence agrees with arithmetic. So he was probably better qualified than most to deal with something like Talents Incorporated. But it was not easy for him. The ground car stopped. An exit port in the space yacht opened, and an extension stair came down. The three of them mounted it. The inner lock door opened, and they entered the Silva. An incredibly fat woman regarded Bors with warm and sentimental eyes. A man no older than Bors, but with prematurely gray hair, nodded at him. A man in a chair lifted a hand in highly dignified greeting. Everyone seemed to know who he was. There was a blonde woman who might be in her late thirties, a short, scowling man with several jeweled rings on his fingers, and a gangling, skinny adolescent. There were still others. Morgan addressed them with enthusiasm. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he said, "'I present Captain Bors. He's come to arrange to use your talents in the gravest of all possible situations for his world.' There were nods. There were bows. The dignified man in the chair said confidently, "'The ship was where I specified.' "'Exactly,' said Morgan, beaming. "'Exactly. A magnificent piece of work. Which is what I expected of you.' He made individual introductions all around. Bors did not begin to catch the names. "'This was so-and-so,' said Morgan. "'Our telepath.' Still another, our ship-arrival precognizer. He predicted the coming of the liner, you remember. He came to the scowling man with rings. Captain Bors, this is our talent for predicting dirty tricks. You've reason to thank him for disclosing that Mekanese cruiser underwater. Bors followed the lead given him. There are many of us, he said, with reason to thank you for a most satisfying operation. We smashed that cruiser. The scowling man nodded portentously. The introductions went on. The skinny adolescent was our talent for locating individuals. The enormously fat woman, our talent for propaganda. Bors was confused. He had to steel himself not to decide flatly that all this was nonsense. Morgan and Gwenlin took him away from what appeared like a sort of social hall for these externally commonplace persons. They arrived at a smaller compartment. It was a much more personal sort of place. Morgan waved his hand. "'Gwenlin and I live here,' he observed. "'Our cabins are yonder, and you might call this our family room. Gwenlin finds the undiluted society of talents a bit wearing. Of course—' Handling them is my profession, though I have some plans for retirement. We'll see our mathematics talent in a minute or two. He knows it's expected that he'll be the most useful of all our talents at the moment. He will make an entrance. Gwenlin sat down. She regarded Bors with amusement. I think the captain's halfway unconvinced again, father. 
I'm not unconvinced, said Bors grimly. I'm desperate. It's not easy either to ignore what's happened or to believe that it will continue. And I, well, if the Mekinese fleet does arrive, I don't want to miss going with our fleet to meet it. You won't miss anything, Captain, said Morgan happily. Have a cigar. Gwenlin, do you think I should? Let me, said Gwenlin. I know how the captain feels. I'm an outsider, too. I haven't any talent, fortunately. Sit down, Captain. Bors seated himself. Morgan offered a cigar. He seemed too impatient and much too pleased to be able to sit down himself. Bors lighted the cigar. At the first puff he removed it and looked at it respectfully. Some cigars were not easy to come by. "'I think,' said Gwenlin amiably, "'that father himself has a talent, which makes him not too easy to get along with. But it has had some good results. I hope it will have more here. The whole business is unbelievable, though, unless you think of some very special facts.' Bors nodded. He puffed again and waited. "'He told you some of it,' said Gwenlin, "'about the ship-arrival talent and the dowser. They've always been such people with gifts that nobody's ever understood but that are real. Only they've always been considered freaks. They feel that they're remarkable, and they are, and they want people to recognize this. But they've never had a function in society.' They've been denied all function. Take the mathematical talent. He can do any sort of mathematics in his head. Any sort. He used to hire out to work computers, and he always got discharged because he did the computations in his head instead of using the machines. He was always right, and he was proud of his ability. He wanted to use it, but nobody let him. He was a miserable misfit until father found him and hired him. Bors nodded again, but his forehead wrinkled. Talents Incorporated is merely an organization, created by my father, to make use of people who can do things ordinarily impossible and probably unexplainable, but which exist nevertheless. There are more talents than father has gathered, of course. But what good are their gifts to them? No good at all. They're considered freaks. So father gathered them together as he found them. First, of course, he needed capital. So he used them to make money. Then he began to do useful things with them, since nobody else did. Now he's brought them here to help. Bors said painfully, They don't all have the same gift. No, agreed Gwenlin. And there are limits to their talents? Naturally. Morgan broke in, amused. "'Gwenlin insists that I have the talent of finding and using talents.' "'A mild talent, father,' said Gwenlin. "'Not enough to make you revolting, but—' A door opened. A tweedy man with a small mustache stood in the doorway. "'I believe I'm wanted,' he said offhandedly. Morgan introduced him. His name was Logan. He was the lightning calculator.' the mathematical talent of Talents Incorporated. Bors shook his hand. The Tweedy man sat down. He drew out a pipe and began to fill it with conscious exactitude. He looked remarkably like a professor of mathematics who modestly pretended to be just another commuter. He dressed the part. 
slightly untidy hair, bulldog pipe, casual, expensive sports shoes. "'I understand,' he said negligently, "'that you want some calculations made.' "'I'm told I do,' said Boris harassedly. "'But I don't know what they are.' "'Then how can I make them?' asked Logan with lifted eyebrows. "'Naturally,' said Morgan, "'you'll find out the kind of calculations he needs that he can't get anywhere else. That'll be the kind he needs from you.' "'Hmm,' said Logan. He blew a smoke-ring thoughtfully. "'Where do you use calculations in space travel?' "'Everywhere,' said Bors. "'But we've computers for it, and they're quite adequate.' Logan shrugged. "'Then what do you need me for?' "'You tell me,' said Bors, nettled. "'Certainly we don't need calculations for space travel. We've no long journey in mind. We're simply going to go out and do some fighting when the Mekinese fleet gets here.' Logan blew another smoke ring. "'What calculations do you use in space-fighting?' "'Courses and distances,' said Bors. He could see no sense in this, but he went on. "'Allowing for acceleration and deceleration in setting our missiles on targets. Allowing for the motion of the targets. Again, we have computers for this. In practice, they're too good. If we send a missile at a Mekinese ship, they set a computer on it, and it computes a course for a counter-missile, which explodes and destroys our missile when it's within a certain distance of it. "'Then your missile doesn't hit,' said Logan. "'All too often it doesn't,' admitted Bors. "'Then their missiles don't hit either.' "'If they send a hundred missiles at us, they're cancelled out if we send a hundred to destroy them. Unfortunately,' If they send more than we can counter, we get wiped out. Bors found his throat going dry. This, of course, was what he'd desperately been denying to himself. It was the fundamental reason for a total lack of hope. The history of warfare is the history of rivalry between attack and defense. In the matter of missiles in space, there was a stalemate. One missile fired in attack could always be destroyed by another fired in defense. It was an arithmetic balance, but it meant that three ships could always destroy two, and four ships three. In the space fight ahead, there would be at least ten Mekinese ships to every one from Kandar. The sally of Kandar's fleet would not be a rush into battle, but an advance into annihilation. "'What we need,' said Bors desperately, is a means to compute courses for our missiles so they'll hit, and that the enemy can't counter-compute, so that his missiles can't compute how to change course in order to cancel ours out. He was astonished as the words left his mouth. This was what was needed, of course, but then he realized that it couldn't be done. Logan blew a smoke ring. "'Mechanical computers,' he said, "'have limits.' They're designed to calculate a trajectory with constant acceleration or no acceleration, but that's all. Bors frowned. What else could there be? Changing acceleration, said Logan condescendingly. A mechanical computer can't compute that, but I can. Bors continued to frown. 
one part of his mind assured him that the statement that mechanical computers could not calculate trajectories of missiles with changing acceleration was incorrect. But the rest of his mind tried to imagine such a trajectory. He couldn't. In practice, men do not have to handle the results of variable acceleration as cumulative effects. I think, said Bors carefully, that if you can do that... Logan blew a smoke ring more perfect than any that had gone before. I'll calculate some tables, he said modestly. You can use them on your computer results. Then, if you arrange your missiles to change their acceleration as they go, the Mekinese missiles can't intercept them. He waved his hand with the grand air of someone assuring a grammar-grade pupil that multiplication tables were quite reliable and could be used with confidence. But his eyes fixed themselves on Bors's face. As the captain realized the implications of his statement, the eyes of the mathematical talent of talents incorporated shone with gratified vanity. "'We'll go out in a couple of tin cans,' said Bors fiercely and try this out with dummy warheads. Gwenlin said quickly, Marvelous, marvelous, Logan. It's nothing, said Logan modestly. But it was a very great deal. Bors, impatient to try it out, nevertheless realized that Logan hadn't made the suggestion out of a brilliant perception of a solution to a problem in ballistics, but because he thought in terms of mathematical processes. He didn't think of a new missile operation, but a new kind of computation, and he reveled in the fact that he had showed off his brilliance. In the ground car on the way to the fleet, Bors said helplessly to Gwenlin, I'm not the right man to be the liaison with you people, but this might make us a pretty costly conquest for Meekin. With luck, we may trade them ship for ship. They won't miss the ships they lose but it'll be a lot of satisfaction to us. "'You expect to be killed,' Gwenlin said flatly. "'My uncle,' explained Bors, "'considers that we should have gotten killed when Meekin took over Tralee. It would have set a good example. Since we didn't do it for Tralee, we'll do it for Kandar. The king's going along, too. After all, that's one of the things kings are for. To get killed?' When necessary, Bors told her, Kandar shouldn't surrender, even though there will be at least ten Mekanese to one Kandarian. She smiled at him very oddly. I suspect, she said, that not everybody on the fleet will be killed. I'm sure of it. In fact, as my father would say, that's Talents Incorporated information. Bors frowned worriedly. The fleet of Meekin continued in overdrive, heading for Kandar. Each second it traversed a distance equal to the span of a solar system, out to its remotest planet. A heartbeat that would begin where a pulsing Cepheid, had it been possible to see, would have seemed at its greatest brilliance, and would end where the light from that same giant star seemed dimmed almost to extinction. Of course, no such observation could be made from any ship in overdrive. Each one of the many, many ugly war machines was sealed in its own cocoon of overdrive-stressed space. 
even in the armed transports that carried officials and bureaucrats and experienced police organizers to set up a puppet government on Kandar, there was not the faintest hint of anything that happened outside the individual ship. But what might be termed the position of the fleet changed with remarkable swiftness. It traveled light years between breaths, light days between sentences, light months and light years. But it would not arrive on Kandar for a long while yet, not for three whole days.